I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004. Enjoy. I'm very excited to be speaking uh, for the next few minutes on the morning show with William L. Hitchcock, Dr. William Hitchcock, who is um, professor of modern European history at Wesley College and uh, the author of several different books, most recently a superb book called The Struggle for Europe, The Turbulent History of a Divided Continent, 1945 uh, to the Present. the book is published by Anchor Books, a division of Random House. And uh, he, of course, has undertaken an extraordinarily rich and complex topic and, uh, and done so, uh, I, I think, very, very well. And uh, we'll talk uh, with Professor Hitchcock for a few minutes about uh, this uh, extraordinary chapter in world history and uh, his challenges in trying to come to terms with it as a historian and author. Professor William Hitchcock, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks. It's good to be with you. I'd like to ask you one quick peripheral question that doesn't really have very much at all to do with this book directly, if I may. I noted in your biography that you were born in Japan, uh, the the son of a U.S. Foreign Service officer. I'd just like to know briefly, if you don't mind, how you think it affects you as a historian and an author looking at events in the world and the history of of how we've come to where we are. to be born in another country, and uh, if, if that has given you uh, maybe a, a richer perspective on things. Oh, I think it has. I mean, I've been very fortunate, although it, it, it didn't seem so when I was a kid moving around, but I was uh, raised in a family. Uh, my father worked for the, uh, the U.S. Foreign Service. He was a diplomat, and we traveled around a good bit. And I was born in Japan and came back to the U.S. to live for a while and then went back to Japan as a, as a youngster for a few years. Um, and uh, then came back to the U.S. Then when I was in my high school years, I spent a couple of years living uh, in Tel Aviv, Israel, in the late 70s, when uh, things were very turbulent, but also very promising in Israel in the late 70s. That was the time of Camp David and the peace between Israel and Egypt. And then I came back to the United States for my college education, but I've also lived overseas in France as well. So it has, I think, given me uh, an, an ability to see the United States through the eyes of other peoples around the world who admire and love the U.S., but sometimes uh, are puzzled by the way we behave. I think it's also given me uh, an insight into how other countries work, sometimes ways I think uh, things don't work so well overseas in, in ways in which the United States is, uh, is handling things a little bit better. So I, I've been very lucky to have lived overseas. Hmm. You... Uh Previously to this, wrote a book called France Restored, Cold War Diplomacy and the Quest for Leadership in Europe, which covers basically the years immediately after uh, the Second World War, early into the 1950s. Right. I wonder what it's like now for you to have undertaken a book like this, which is a much broader scale, a much more complicated topic in, in a sense that maybe f- flies against what is often the grain that one might attack a, a real big thing and then find certain chapters within it that are particularly interesting and then delve into them in, in more depth. You've kind yeah. of done the opposite thing here in a way, and I have a feeling it probably was not easy to undertake this particular task. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, this is a book that covers uh, half a century and about, uh, well, 25 countries. Uh, it's, a, it's a big book. My first book on, called France Restored was a much more narrow uh, a monograph that focused in on 
of French diplomacy and their relations with Germany and particularly with the United States in the 1940s and the 1950s. And the struggle for Europe takes on a much broader uh, canvas, although some of the issues uh, you know, that, that the first book was about are also in the second book, particularly how Europe recovered after the Second World War, uh, Europe's relations with the United States over this time, and particularly in the early Cold War, but now right up through the present. Um, the role of Germany in Europe. These are issues that are perennial uh, for any European historian, and I, I tried to deal with, uh, with those in both books. But it's true that writing a big survey like this that deals with a lot of countries over a large period of time uses a different part of your brain, if you like, than writing a more uh, standard, straightforward monograph. Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of in-depth in archival research in France and in Britain and the United States for my uh, book on uh, France Restored. Uh, this uh, the struggle for Europe is a much broader work in which I, I read a great deal of published secondary works and tried to synthesize them, tried to bring out the essence of what makes post-war Europe work, and then also what its shortcomings are. And that's, in a sense, what I've tried to accomplish. And that's that's why the book is called the Struggle for Europe, because the struggle is still a, a you know Europe is a work in progress. It, it it hasn't completed its task yet. So yeah, it was a big shift of uh, of, of gears for me. Hmm. We're speaking with Professor William Hitchcock, the author of The Struggle for Europe, The Turbulent History of a Divided Continent, 1945 to the Present. Uh, Professor Hitchcock, I think one of the things you do so well in this book is that you remind all of us of something that perhaps we know on one level but probably do not profoundly understand enough, uh, namely the, the extent of devastation of the European continent in the immediate wake of the Second World War, that even after uh, the bombs had stopped dropping and the bullets had stopped flying, uh, that there was still a, a great deal of, of suffering, and uh, and it is uh, we should not underestimate that. No, indeed, it, it, it's just uh, it's hard to re reconstruct to to recapture that moment in time uh, at the end of the Second World War when the the war had ended, but you still had. An entire continent occupied by foreign armies, the United States, the Soviet Union, British armies, uh, all spread across Central Europe. Um, the Soviet Union itself, and I think this is a fact that many Americans uh, don't sufficiently appreciate, the Soviet Union itself lost 25 million people killed in the Second World War. That includes soldiers and civilians, but more civilians died in the Soviet Union than soldiers did during the Second World War. It was absolutely devastating for them. Uh, Germany lost five to six million people. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of people in Germany at the end of the war who had been shipped into Germany by the Germans to work on behalf of the German war effort. They were essentially slave laborers. And when the German Third Reich came to an end, those people were suddenly freed, but they had to get home. So there was an enormous refugee problem of perhaps uh, as many as eight to ten million people struggling to get home at the end of the war. There was the appalling sight uh, and realization of um, just what the Germans had accomplished in their, in their uh, genocidal campaign against Europe's Jews and against others in Europe. Uh, when the concentration camps were liberated uh, in the western part of Germany by the United States and by Britain, suddenly Americans could see firsthand what had been going on inside Germany uh, during the war. And then these people uh, had to deal with survival and, 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 and recovering their health and being transported back home to resume their life. It was, it was an absolutely awful picture. And I think our associations with the end of Europe, of the end of the war in Europe, are generally good ones. You know, May 8, 1945, VE Day, celebration. 
but for a lot of Europeans, there wasn't a great deal to celebrate. Well, and it's interesting, too, that we're talking not only about, of course, physical and economic devastation, um, leveled buildings and devastated farmland and, and, and those sorts of very, very tangible uh, damage is done, plus, of course, loss of life or, or physical injury of, of terrible scale. But on top of it, then sort of the remaining sense of, of anger or betrayal or, I mean, those, those sorts of emotions hanging in the air, oh, yeah. which also, of course, as you talk so beautifully about in your book, really complicated the whole process of putting things back together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was per- it was a perfectly obvious human feeling to feel a certain degree of, uh, of desire for vengeance and, and, uh, and for, for reaching out at those people who had, who had uh, oppressed you during the war. Uh, in most of the European countries, there, were, there was a brief but intense period of bloodletting uh, as in the closing, uh, the closing months uh, of the war. And that uh, it varied from country to country. In France, the war came to an end uh, a bit earlier because of the liberation of France, which had been completed by uh, the middle to the end of 1944. And inside France, there were perhaps as many as 10,000 people who were summarily executed because of their uh, collaboration with the Germans. They were essentially hauled up uh, you know, on a sort of uh, a drumhead and um, sentenced to death and taken out into the, out into the back courtyard and, sh- and shot to death by a small groups of partisans or, uh, or local officials in a way that was not at all official or controlled by the state. And the state had to reassert authority and put into place the uh, means for legal uh, trials and, and so on. This happened across Europe um, in a fairly disorganized and, and, and uh, the bloody way that you might expect after such enormous, uh, uh, terrible uh, bloodletting across the continent. It was, it was only, it was only uh, you know, with the American occupation in Germany that the legal proceedings were slowly put into place, but it took time for that mm. to happen. You mentioned the fact, too, so, so tragically that, for instance, the Soviets, as they uh, swept through, through Germany and some of this that you're talking about, uh, unfortunately took out their anger and desire for vengeance against uh, what you call uh, weak and defenseless villagers and townspeople in, yeah, e- in eastern Germany. I mean, how sad that if there was this anger, this unquenchable de- desire for vengeance, yeah. that it could not have at least been directed more appropriately. Oh, it was an absolutely awful chapter in the history of the war and of the post-war. The Soviet armies were essentially set loose on the on the, the peoples of, you know, of eastern Germany, and the Red Army commanders essentially gave their soldiers uh, free license to treat German civilians and ethnic Germans, that is, people who had a German uh, family line, but going back to, to German relatives, but may have been living in, in Poland, uh, they were basically uh, essentially seen as the enemy, whether they wore a uniform or not. And Red Army uh, soldiers took out uh, an, an absolutely horrible vengeance against uh, against Germans, civilians as well as soldiers, and uh, sadly, sad to say, particularly against German women who were uh, mistreated by uh, soldiers from the Red Army in extraordinarily high number. It was a, a brutal moment of, of bloodletting and vengeance. On the other hand, one has to remember uh, where this hatred came from. The Germans invaded the Soviet Union, and they laid waste to that country and occupied it for a couple of years. Well, um, you mentioned the fact that the Soviets uh, suffered more civilian casualties than combatant casualties. And so, in a sense, uh, the way in which they struck out in anger yeah. uh, makes a sort of terrible sense. It, it's true, and, you know, uh, it, ha- it, ought to be, it ought to be said, though, that uh, 
that, that it's true of, of virtually all European countries that they suffered more civilian casualties than military casualties. Hmm. It's, it's something that Americans forget because it's just the opposite for us. We, we, uh, uh, you know, we, about 300,000 American soldiers uh, were killed in total in the Second World War, which is a very, very high number for American, the, the American military experience. We, we sacrificed a great deal of American blood and did so uh, under very difficult circumstances. But when compared against what the Europeans suffered, um, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a relatively small figure compared to the enormous uh, toll taken upon European peoples. There was no distinction in World War II in Europe between the soldier and the civilian, and that is one of the reasons it, it remains such a, an absolutely calamitous uh, period in, in 20th century history. Hmm. We have talked about the fact that uh, in, in the wake of this devastation, boy, that word shows up a lot in the pages of your book, in, particularly in this chapter called Aftermath, that... Um, uh, of paramount importance, uh, uh, an almost insurmountable challenge and task for so many Europeans was just daily survival. But you say that uh, really equal to that challenge in some respects was uh, the need for order. Uh, give us some sense of how order uh, was achieved in the midst of this really awful situation. Well, it was difficult uh, to establish order, and I think this is something we ought to be reminded of at the present moment when, when we're trying to establish order once again in a defeated country, uh, namely Iraq. It, was, it took a long time. It took longer than we might think uh, in, in retrospect. Um, it required uh, a long-term American military occupation uh, in, in Germany in particular. Germany was totally devastated, but one advantage Germany had was that its civilian bureaucracy was still uh, somewhat, indeed even largely, intact at the end of the Second World War, and so that the American occupation authorities were able to use the local authorities uh, in Germany to basically run the most simple and, 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 uh, and needy of services. Um, this was also true in France, where France had suffered a great deal in the war, but its government had continued to function. And although there was a transition in personnel, from those people who had collaborated with Germany to those people who were who had favored the resistance, uh, there was also a good deal of continuity in the basic institutions of political and economic life, so that the water uh, system still functioned, the electricity systems could be got back up and running relatively, um, relatively swiftly. Uh, it took an enormous amount of time to rebuild the, all of the infrastructure, but the the sense of the state. Uh, functioning was uh, it was still there. It was still legitimate. People still looked to their mayor and their local town council as having authority and legitimacy, and they did want order. They wanted stability. They wanted predictability, and they got these things with the cooperation, the enormous cooperation of the uh, of the U.S. military. But it took time. It took uh, it took quite a few months to get uh, sort of life even remotely out of the danger zone, and then it took years before life was back to anything like normal. Specifically regarding uh, American occupation of Germany and, uh, and our relationship to, to the Germans in, in the immediate wake of the Second World War, I thought one of the interesting things you touched on was uh, the two tasks of denazification and decartelization. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and with each of those, uh, the, the Americans were confronted with all kinds of very difficult questions. 
about absolutely. how much to do, <laughs> who to do it to. Yes. Um, that in itself uh, was, was sort of a wrinkle in this that, that I had not stopped to really fully consider. Well, after all, I mean, uh, when you come into, into a country like Germany at the end of the war and you say, well, we want to denazify the country. Uh, that sounds like a very reasonable thing to want to do. After all, it was the Nazi party that had uh, waged this terrible war on the rest of Europe. But how do you identify all of the members of the Nazi party? And then once you've identified them and you find that there are many, many millions of uh, Nazi party members, wh- what are you going to do with them? How do you punish them? Can you remove everybody who was ever a Nazi party member from the, uh, the political life of the country? And the answer, very quickly, it appeared, was no. It would have been impossible to do that because so many people felt coerced to join the Nazi party. Many, many millions joined because they felt ideological sympathy with the party, but others joined because they were essentially uh, felt uh, compelled to do so. If you had removed all of these millions of people from the functioning of the country, you might have found that there was a power vacuum. So the Americans began to, uh, to essentially slowly ratchet back their ambitions in the denazification process. And they understood that there were going to be people who were going to get through the net. They weren't going to get every bad guy. And that's one of the reasons that they focused on just a handful of political leaders in the Nuremberg trials. Just about 20 of the leading uh, uh, military and Nazi party officials were tried. And not even all of them were sentenced to death. Some were sentenced to relatively mild um, uh, punishments, uh, imprisonment sentences, and so on. So early on, the Americans sent a message that they were not going to punish all the German people. They were going to go after the top guys and the party establishment, but they understood they were going to have to forgive and forget pretty quickly uh, in, in order to transition uh, to a functioning, uh, a peaceful society. And that, left, that was controversial, after all. Uh, it meant that many people who served the Nazi party uh, did not pay a price for doing so. I want to talk about a couple of other specific items in in this period right after the Second World War, uh, which uh, have always been of, of of particular interest to me. One of them was the fact that uh, almost almost as soon as World War II uh, is over, so is the uh, prime ministry of Winston Churchill, uh, to the astonishment of many observers. But as your book so correctly points out, there were all kinds of reasons why Churchill, such a a beloved figure during the Second World War, found himself uh, out of office so abruptly after the Second World War. Among them, something I'd not uh, read about before, the uh, amazingly poor campaign (laughs) which he waged. (laughs) He was a disastrous campaigner. After all, he'd been been focusing on rather different issues for the previous uh, four years, uh, uh, six years. He'd been waging... uh, waging war in, uh, and leading the country through its uh, greatest trial, and he did so with extraordinary talent and skill. But he was a great war leader. He wasn't a very good political, uh, he wasn't a very supple politician, let's put it that way. He ran a very bad re-election campaign in which he assumed that the public would reward him for his service. Uh, he denounced the Labor Party as basically uh, very, very left-wing socialists, even he, he implied a kind of uh, that they might lead a kind of Gestapo into British society to um, round up uh, critics of the government and so on. This was totally uh, extremist, inflammatory language that turned off the public. But I think we, you know Winston Churchill is more of an American hero than he is a British hero, which is I think interesting. We look to him now reverentially, uh, reverentially, all the more so um, of late. Uh, but the British public at the time, while they 
loved him and cherished him also realized that he was a limited figure who couldn't, they thought, bring about the kind of domestic, political, economic change that they desperately wanted at the end of the war. And they looked to the Labor Party uh, to do that. The Labor Party had a much stronger record on uh, sort of economic and social issues, on uh, uh, welfare reform, the benefits, health care, education for children, um, you know, milk subsidies. They had been focusing on those things during the war. The Labor Party leaders basically ran the home front during the war, while Churchill was out winning the war in, in the battlefield. So in a way, it was a changing of the guard. It wasn't so much that they were rejecting Churchill, although he felt rejected. It was that they wanted uh, men in power, men and women in power, who could, uh, now that the war was over, focus on uh, the home front. Hmm. Well, and you, you also point out quite rightly that his successor, Prime Minister uh, Attlee, had served Churchill uh, quite selflessly as sort of his number two man uh, during the Second World War. And uh, uh, very much a team player, modest, hardworking man, you say. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there are reasons why he seemed uh, equipped to lead Britain through what was uh, assuredly going to be a difficult period. Indeed. And, and, of course, we have to remember that the British political system is not a presidential one. The, the, the British voters were not voting uh, to uh, on, on Churchill's personality versus Clement Attlee's personality. Had they done so, Ch- Churchill would have won resoundingly because not many people knew anything about uh, Clement Attlee. But they were voting for parties. They were voting for their local uh, party official, and that local official would go to the Commons and represent uh, the party. And so they voted in more Labour members than, than Conservative members. That doesn't mean that they didn't like or appreciate what Churchill had accomplished. It also doesn't mean that they loved uh, Clement Attlee, but that he had he was uh, seen as a sober, smart, industrious, uh, but also left-wing uh, political leader who would change Britain, they thought, uh, for the better. It also has to be said, though, that Winston Churchill and the Conservatives uh, were returned to political power just six years later uh, in, uh, in 1951. They came back, and Churchill had a second round as prime minister. That's right. We should turn back the clock, actually, just a little bit. You offer some... Uh uh, intriguing analysis, I think, of the Yalta Conference, which so many of us uh, know something about. Um, you say quite forthrightly that the American delegation thought Yalta a marvelous success. Uh, interesting language in that I think most of us, when we look back at the Yalta Conference and what occurred there, uh, we don't think of it so much as a resounding success. We think of what uh, the U.S. gave up. Uh, the, 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 the events which uh, the Yalta Conference, in a sense, set in motion. We think of a frail FDR um, who was perhaps not anywhere near at the height of his abilities at, at, at that very pivotal moment. Uh, sure. In, in what, was it a genuine success, or, or were Americans sort of, uh, the, the delegation, were, were they misunderstanding what happened there? Well, of course, with hindsight, we know that Yalta was, in a sense, a betrayal of the Eastern European peoples who now would be under Soviet rule uh, for the next 50 years, and that, and, the, and that the Soviet Union would manage to achieve that domination of Eastern Europe uh, without American protest, essentially, which is what happened at Yalta. So we know, in retrospect, that it harmed uh, the interests of Eastern Europeans uh, a great deal. But remember the context. It was in February 1945. The war was not yet over. Roosevelt, it's true, was ill, uh, but what he was concerned with doing was maintaining good relations with Stalin and with the Soviet Union. 
He knew that he had to give up something in order to get good relations with Stalin. Uh, and he did. He, he basically acknowledged Russian preeminence in Eastern Europe and, and uh, in an in a inadvertent way, basically winked and nodded and said, Stalin, look, you're already in control of Eastern Europe. What could I do to oppose you there? But, but FDR got in return Soviet uh, participation in the United Nations, which he desperately wanted. Otherwise, there would have been no UN. And he got basic agreement on some general principles about what to do with post-war Germany, which he also really wanted. So those were things that Roosevelt came to Yalta uncertain about, and he came away thinking, I've got Stalin's uh, cooperation and agreement to work together with the U.S. in the post-war world through the United Nations in the occupation of Germany. And he felt that in the long run that was going to be good for the United States, probably good for Europe. Um, so, you know, Yalta is one of those buzzwords that for some people means betrayal, but for others, particularly at the time, was seen as the necessary compromises you have to make with other great powers. We're speaking with Professor William Hitchcock, the author of The Struggle for Europe, The Turbulent History of a Divided Continent, 1945 to the Present. We are focusing a lot of our attention on this immediate aftermath of the Second World War. If we had hours to speak instead of minutes, of course, we would try to survey a bit more of what this book uh, encapsulates. We'll, we'll do a little of that uh, at the very end of the interview. I cannot... Uh, allow this interview to, 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 to go by without having you recount a bit, as you do in the book so beautifully, uh, that incredible story of the Soviet blockade uh, of, of, and the, uh, sure. the airlift, which you call a masterpiece of logistics and courage, which made such a difference for so many people. Indeed. Uh, the, the, the blockade of Berlin in 1948 to 1949 uh, stands out as one of those sort of uh, crystallizing moments in the early Cold War. Uh, the Soviet Union basically felt that you know Berlin. You have to remember where Berlin was. It was deep inside East Germany. It was not on the border between East and West Germany. It was fully inside East Germany. And the Soviets felt this was an anomaly that inside uh, their zone of occupation, the eastern half or third of Germany, uh, they ought to be fully in control of that territory. But there was Berlin right in the middle of it as a real annoyance, a real burr in the saddle. In, inside Berlin, by, by joint agreement, there were Americans, there were British, there were French, who participated in the joint occupation of the capital city. This was a constant irritant to the Russians, and they felt at various times throughout the Cold War that they should try to get the Americans and their allies out of Berlin and demonstrate uh, their control over eastern Germany. And the Berlin blockade was an effort to do just that. It was retaliation for what the Americans were doing in the western half of Germany. Uh, the, the Americans had just introduced a new currency in, uh, in West Germany, the Deutschmark, and the Soviets disagreed with that. So in retaliation, they said, all right, we're going to blockade the city of Berlin. And they put up, essentially, uh, a total land blockade of the city. They would not allow anyone coming in or out of, uh, of Berlin from the American, uh, British, or French occupation authorities. Well, uh, this was uh, obviously very worrisome for those people in West Berlin who now didn't have the basic access to the outside world, and they didn't have supplies, they didn't have coal, they didn't have food. Where were they going to get these materials? Well, the one loophole that the Berlin blockade uh, offered was that the Soviets did not uh, demand that air, air flights into the city be stopped. In order to enforce that, of course, they would have had to shoot down American airplanes, and they were not willing to do that. Well, this meant that the British and the Americans could launch an air bridge from West Germany flying over East Germany into the city of West Berlin. And they did so. 
And they started out small with uh, relatively small numbers of flights, but within a pretty short time, they got this Berlin uh, airlift into the most extraordinary uh, uh, sort of cycle, where they were cycling in dozens of aircraft every 24 hours, each of them packed with medicine, food, clothing, even coal, even hay for the, for the horses. I mean, it was extraordinary. There was nothing that Berliners consumed uh, that didn't come in on an American or a British airplane. And this went on for almost an entire year until it became such a propaganda success for the United States, such a demonstration of America's commitment to keeping the Soviets out of West Berlin, that the Russians became increasingly embarrassed by the whole thing, and they relented. They gave up, and they, they essentially withdrew their, their blockade and returned to the status quo ante, which allowed for land contact between West Germany and West Berlin. Hmm. It was a wonderful sort of crystallization of the, in the early Cold War. And, of course, one chapter in a long story of remarkable recovery for, uh, for uh, the European continent. You talk about uh, some different factors which have contributed to uh, the resurgence of Europe and to its uh, emergence uh, in, into what it is uh, today. Uh, very interesting uh, comments. So uh, we have to be very brief, but uh, let's let's just examine those if we could. You talk first about about how Western Europe had what you call a good Cold War. That is a it is a Cold War from which they were really able to benefit. Oh well, it's true. They didn't much like living through it, but it helped Western Europe a good deal. Uh, and the main way it helped Western Europe was that it uh, it obliged the United States to commit itself to Europe's economic success and Europe's security. And because the United States was committed to both of those things throughout the duration of the Cold War, the Europeans had a great partner in, in rebuilding uh, the west, western half of the continent. Um, it, the Americans took a keen interest in Europe's health and its welfare and its security and its prosperity. Uh, that's not to say the United States did all the heavy lifting, but they, they had a relationship in the 1940s and 50s and, of course, through the Cold War that they never had after World War I, that was always missing after World War I. They opened up their trade relations. They opened up their economies to one another. They had strong security partnership in the, in the Cold War. These were things Europe had never enjoyed before, and it brought about a degree of stability and predictability to European uh, relations with, it, with their neighbors that Europe had never previously had. I think it's a critical dimension in explaining Europe's post-war success. We talked about the incredible devastation left in the wake of the Second World War, but you call that paradoxically a positive in a sense that, that Europe had to rebuild its industrial capacity almost from scratch right. and was able to rebuild something stronger than before. Well, naturally, uh, the, uh, this is also true of Japan. Uh, with such enormous devastation to their uh, their industrial and economic infrastructure, Europeans had to start what amounted from scratch, uh, which meant that they could kind of uh, sort of uh, sort of like opening the window and letting in fresh air. They brought in fresh ideas, and many of those ideas came from the American experience of uh, of mass uh, uh, production and uh, heavy industrialization and, and uh, high tech modernization. So they were, in a way, able to sweep away many of the old habits that had always restricted European growth in the 20s and the 30s, and, and, and they brought in uh, ideas about uh, in, industrialization that were, had been tried and tested in the American context, and many of those were transplanted fairly effectively to Western Europe. Hmm. Part of this story is that of the resistance against repression 
and injustice from from the communists, which you you see as also very much a, a forging force for for much of Europe, especially of course Eastern Europe. Yes, I, I just don't think we can state enough how much courage and guts it took on on the uh, from the Eastern Europeans, the Poles, the Czechs, Hungarians, uh, Romanians, and others. Uh, they had to suffer enormous consequences of Soviet occupation, but repeatedly, we shouldn't forget that repeatedly they rose up against. Uh, so that Soviet occupation, and against their own governments who were collaborating with the Soviet Union. Uh, they did so periodically, uh, courageously, throughout the Cold War, 1953 in Berlin, 1956 in Hungary, uh, 1968 in Prague, in the late 70s in Czechoslovakia, of course in Poland. Uh, the, the Solidarity Trade Union movement stands out as one of the great resistance operations against the Soviet Union throughout the 1980s. And finally, in late 1989, unarmed young people took to the streets across Eastern Europe, particularly in East Germany, and protested against their repressive government. Hmm. That's not the only reason the Berlin Wall fell, but it's a big part of it. Right. You also point out the fact that, uh, amazingly, over this this period of, of some 50 years, that the European continent has managed, by and large, to avoid violent revolution. And... Uh, and these political changes uh, sometimes have come about very dramatically, but almost always through moderation and compromise. You, you point out a propensity for reform rather than revolution. Well, it's true. I mean, Europe has figured out a way to go through political transitions and change uh, and been very fortunate that those transitions have been largely uh, peaceful. You know, we, we, uh, we can look to southern Europe, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Greece, countries that weren't uh, democratic in the much of the post-war period, but themselves went through a process of democratic uh, expansion and growth in the 1970s. They did so, on the whole, uh, peacefully, because they had, I think, to hand, uh, models about the fact that, that democracy was working in the rest of Europe. They could look to the other democratic countries in Europe and say, we want some of that. That just seems much more appealing and more attractive. Um, the Eastern Europeans, too, uh, managed to use, uh, to a very large degree, nonviolence to undermine uh, communist rule, although there was no guarantee that was going to happen. It was a near-run thing in 1989 that the regimes in East Germany and elsewhere uh, didn't use violence to crack down on the protesters. Europe has been, has been I think, enormously fortunate, fortunate in this regard. It, it, it passed is filled with bloody, violent revolution, but it has gone through political change and evolution over the last 50 years. Uh, almost entirely peacefully. The book, again, is The Struggle for Europe and uh, explores the incredible financial, economic booms of the uh, 50s, uh, a chapter called Rebels, which explores political unrest, and finally this remarkable chapter of unity of, of recent years. And the book also explores some of the problems which uh, the continent of Europe, of course, continues to confront. The book... Uh, the Struggle for Europe, The Turbulent History of a Divided Continent, uh, published by Anchor Books and its author, Professor William Hitchcock. Professor Hitchcock, my thanks to you for writing this fine, fine book and for joining us today on The Morning Show it to talk about pleasure. some of it. Thank you so much.